Welcome. We uh, rejoice uh, this morning that uh, wherever you are, whoever is joining in, that together, because it is the Holy Spirit who unites us together, we can offer up our praise to our great God. I want to uh, thank everyone who's making this uh, possible. Those who are singing in the choir are Dick Forrester, Russ and Jan Murray, Harold and Teresa Parker, Carol Walker, and folks is playing the flute. Barb Roundtree is working and helping with the, uh, the sound and make this recording possible. And then Chris Hatledge is uh, handling things in the sound booth, and he's the one who's putting this uh, service together for you to be able to, to watch it. Let me uh, take this time also, again, to, to reiterate before anyone who needs help, particularly now that we are in shelter in place, do not hesitate to, to call into the church, to email, uh, to contact your elders or deacons, however it may be best for you. There are people willing to, and who can go to the store for you, go to the pharmacy. Do not hesitate uh, to ask for help. Let me also thank everyone who has sent in their uh, contributions or donations and offerings. Uh, it was overwhelming what you said last week, and we need to continue that. Uh, so I just encourage you to continue uh, as part of your own worship of sending in your offering to the church. And let's prepare our hearts for worship.
comes from John 12, 13. Hear God's word. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Let's sing together and worship. Thank you. 
Let us pray. We to give you praise, our God, for uh, the greatness of, of your, that you are our King. You are the Lord of Lords. And we praise you that in your majesty you have so deigned that you may um, bring us, allow us to come into your presence to worship you. And so we do offer our praise and our thanksgiving, our adoration before you now. We pray for the anointing of your spirit, that all that we do will be that which does honor you. And we acknowledge you, we worship you through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our confession of faith this morning comes from the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, Father Almighty. From thence he come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, 1. I'm reading for the ESV. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me and on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeite by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. We'll sing again before the throne of God. Thank you. 
Let us pray. We do give you thanks, our God, again, for our Lord Jesus Christ, that before your throne we have a strong and a perfect plea, that there is our great high priest, that because upon that cross he has satisfied uh, your justice, that he has purchased us by his blood. We know now that we may come to you and, and pray and know that you hear our prayers as God our Father. And we do lift our prayers before you. We, we continue to pray in the midst of this pandemic to pray for your mercy, to pray for uh, you to bring healing to those who uh, have received already this virus, for you to protect others. Father, we know that this is worldwide, and, and, and we pray for the world, for your protection and, and for bringing uh, this uh, pandemic to an end. But today, this morning, we, we think of our own community, and we pray for our neighbors, pray for those in our family, we pray for ourselves, for your protection. We pray, our Father, for those who are uh, serving us at, at Good Samaritan. We pray for the nurses there, the, the doctors, those who are working uh, to protect us, to, to uh, treat those who are ill. And we pray for them. We know that uh, they are growing weary just physically and mentally and emotionally. And we pray that you would sustain them, that you would uphold them. We pray that for all the nurses and doctors throughout our area and their different offices, and for those who are serving as nurses, aides and assistants in the nursing homes, in the retirement homes. Again, we pray for your protection of them. We pray for your protection of their families as when they go home. We pray that you would uh, give to, to them, to their families, a sense of your, your peace. And our Father, we pray all the more as well for everyone who is playing their roles, for those in, in our local governments, decisions they must make, for those who are in law enforcement, their decisions, they must uh, expose themselves to danger each day, those who serve as the emergency medical technicians, those in our fire departments, everyone who has a role in which they, they must go where they're where need is there. And uh, so we pray for them and thank you for them. We thank you for those who are working uh, in the stores, the local stores, to, to provide us with our necessaries, our food and other supplies. And we pray for your protection of them. For everyone is in some kind of, uh, of service business and they are carrying on uh, their work. Uh, so that we can, again, have our needs met. We pray for ourselves to exercise the discipline that we need to, to take, to protect ourselves, to protect our loved ones, to protect our neighbors. It is, it is becoming a growing hardship, and yet this is what you have called us to do, and you've given us the privilege to care, to show our love for one another. May we be faithful and active in our contacting by phone and, and the other means of, that you have given to us, email and text messages, all these other ways, so that we can let each person know that they are not forgotten, 
So may we be faithful in lifting each other up in our church family. And then our Father, you know our needs of each one. You know, you're, you're with each one right now who is listening to this prayer, wherever they may be. And I pray for your, your blessings upon them, your mercies upon them, for you to uplift them, for them to sense your presence that is with them, to know that they are not alone. And I pray that you would answer their prayers for their loved ones who are, perhaps, who are throughout this country and throughout this world, that you would answer their prayers. And then all the more may you receive the worship that we're offering to you in our different homes. We are worship but that we're offering you together as the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, united by his Holy Spirit. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.
second scripture this morning comes from Hebrews 9, 23-26. Again, reading from the ESV. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest entered the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have not to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. God bless you his word. Well, it is uh, December 1976, and I have just turned in my final exam. It was for American novels. I've stepped out of the room. I am walking down the stairs, and the reality hits me. I have finished. I have completed my last exam of college, and I, and I knew I had aced it. By the way, I had I'd finished the race of college. No more classes, no more papers, no more examines. And I finished well. It, it is still fresh in my memory, just that feeling that I had. Well, we're going to look this morning at a far greater finish of a far greater work. And we're going to look at the one who passed his test. And accomplish perfectly the goal that he was sent to do. Look with me in uh, John uh, chapter 19. We're going to begin with verse 28, going through verse 37. If you're uh, at home and you've got the bulletin there on the screen, you can use that or just open up your Bibles. So let's begin with verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now we come to the end of Jesus' story on this side of the cross. For three years, he has carried out his preaching and his signs uh, ministry. Uh, He's now made it to Jerusalem for that very purpose, to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be falsely tried, to be scourged and mocked, and now to be crucified. You know, and and John, interestingly, gives us very little description of that crucifixion. I mean, We know that a a sign was placed over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Uh, We know that he was crucified between two thieves. The soldiers cast lots uh, for his clothing. Uh, We know that his mother and three other uh, women were present, as well as John, and that Jesus charged John uh, to take care of his mother. Now what we learn is that he expresses his thirst He's given sour wine to moisten his mouth, 
and then he dies. Or rather, as it states here, he gave up his spirit. That word to give is active. Jesus did not have his spirit, uh, his breath taken from him. He gave it as a gift. And we're going to see how Jesus was found dead in just a moment uh, before uh, that was expected. His life was his to give. That's the point here. At the time that he determined was right. And when was the right time? Well, it was when his work was finished. You know, twice John uses that word finished. And actually that word about the scripture being fulfilled is taken from the same root word in Greek. And so clearly there's a significant concept here that John is communicating. He wants us to understand that the work that Jesus had come into this world to do was being accomplished, being completed there on that cross. And Jesus would not give up his last breath until it had been completed. That work was being the Passover lamb that would provide deliverance for his people. Now let's continue. Look with me in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sab- that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You know, a gruesome fact about the crucifixion is that the victim needed to push himself up with his feet in order to breathe. So breaking his legs took away that ability, and the victims then would would very soon then die. Typically, they would linger for days. So that was the need here, because it was the day of preparation. They needed those bodies to be taken down. They break the legs. They can no longer keep breathing. And yet, what was noted, again by John, is that Jesus had already given up his breath. And so when the soldiers come, they do not need to see that he is dead. They do not need to, to break his, his legs. Even so, just to make sure, a soldier pierces his side. Now, why all of this detail? The disciples do not even mention this occurrence. Well, the reason is found in verse 36, where it says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. John is keen on his readers, seeing how Jesus' mission was a fulfillment due to the details of the Old Testament scriptures. 
And three times he points this out in verse 28. He notes that Jesus' thirst is a fulfillment. He's likely thinking of Psalm 69:21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Then in verse 36, it speaks of the bones not being broken as fulfillment. Now, you might have two passages in mind here. You may be thinking of Psalm 34, 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. But undoubtedly, he's also, he has to be thinking of the Passover lamb. Exodus 12:46 specifies that no bones of the Passover lamb may be broken. And all along, we've seen how John has been leading us to see Jesus as the Passover lamb who covers, who protects us from our sins. And then there's verse 37. It's referring to Jesus, to, to Jesus piercing. Here John is quoting from Zechariah 12.10, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So, John refers to the word scripture, that term, or he uses the word scriptures, 12 times in his gospel, four times in this one chapter, three times just in these last verses we saw. In every case, it's in the context, he's saying, of scripture being fulfilled, or that it cannot be broken. And so, clearly, his message that he's trying to communicate to us is that Jesus' mission, and especially here his death, it follows what is the prescription for the Messiah. Jesus' death, far from disproving that he is the Messiah, actually all the more proves his claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And that sign placed above his head, stating, King of the Jews, what John is telling us is that it proclaims the truth. And it is testified by the Jewish scriptures. Look back with me again here at the, the incident of the bones and, and the piercing, because that, that incident especially demonstrates this. You know, Jesus could control his, his speaking about his being thirsty. He could, he could be saying to himself, I need to say that I'm thirsty to fulfill scripture. But this breaking of the bones, the piercing of the side, he had no control of. The soldiers came there intending to break his bones, but because he had died, they did not. And yet then still, for some reason, they still pierce his side. And so what they do is unknowingly fulfill the scriptures. So John is saying to us, see, see how God so works the details that all the scriptures are fulfilled. So let's turn now to our lessons. The first lesson to learn is this. It's how the work of Jesus was completed there upon that cross. What did he mean when he said, it is finished? Or to put the question another way, why did Jesus die? Well, we know that Jesus came to save us, don't we? It's clearly stated in John 3, 16 to 17. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
So the question here is, from what does Jesus save us? Well, Scripture uses another, a number of terms to, to talk about this. One word is condemnation. Romans 8.1, we are told that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has saved us from condemnation. There's the term judgment. We are saved from judgment. Again, in Romans 2.5, Paul is speaking here that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up, up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Jesus dealt on that cross. They're saving us from that day of wrath, that judgment. You know, it is Jesus who specifically uses the term hell. In Matthew 10, 28, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we're to understand that Jesus came to save us from condemnation, from judgment, from hell. These things await us because of the guilt of our sins. But Jesus saves us. How then does he save us? What is happening on that cross that he finished, that he completed? Well, there is much that's taking place on the cross. A lot of theology books have been written about this. But we're going to focus on the two most basic concepts, that of ransom and a longer word, propitiation. Look with me, first of all, about ransom. Now, Jesus stated this clearly as his mission. You can find it in Mark 10, 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are other scriptures that use this concept. I'm just going to select just a hand, handful of them. First, from 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Well, let me go to First Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or to go to the last book of that glorious worship that's taking place in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. When all the, the saints and the elders and have gathered for worship. And they say to, to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This, this concept that is behind ransom is simply this. It's the paying the price to redeem, to, to gain back, or to deliver a person or an object that's in the possession of another. We redeem an object that we put down for security, for example, in a pawn shop. In the ancient world, slaves could be ransomed. They could even ransom themselves to gain their liberty. We know about kidnappers who demand a ransom payment 
to release their captives. So in terms of what Jesus did on the cross, he paid that ransom payment for us to release us from the slavery that sin had over us, sin's dominion. And as long as we were under that dominion of slavery, all we could expect was God's judgment to fall upon us. Well, Jesus ransomed us from that slavery. As Peter again had noted, he redeemed us with his precious blood. That was the ransom payment for us. You know, this would have us then ask the question, why blood should be the payment? Well, the reason is found in the second concept, that term propitiation. Let me give you a couple of verses with this. First from 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then from Romans 3.23 to 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means this. It is to turn away the wrath of God. Our sins bring on us the wrath of judgment. That wrath must be appeased. And it can only be appeased by justice. That is, by a just sentence being carried out. That judgment was carried out on Jesus on the cross. Now, why could God not simply forgive our sins without the sacrifice of Jesus? Well, passage from that we've already read from Romans goes on to explain. This is Romans 3, 25, 26. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay, so he's, he's holding back. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, God had been holding back on judgment. But if he is to be a just, a righteous God, he must at some point act up toward our sin with justice. And we all like mercy. Even so, we would not be pleased with a judge who would not carry out just sentences. We would protest we would say there is no justice. Well, understand that justice took place on the cross. The penalty for our sins was paid. The just wrath of God was satisfied as Jesus bore our sins and the penalty of those sins upon his shoulders. This is what Isaiah 53 is all about. Let me read some verses from that great chapter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is this work, this bearing of our iniquity, this receiving the just punishment for our sins, that is the work that Jesus pronounces as finished. Now, I was quoting from Isaiah, and that leads us to the next lesson. And that is to see how Jesus in his work was all foreshadowed, all prophesied for us in the Old Testament. It's interesting that the scriptures John uses to, to present is fulfilled. If you were to go back uh, to those passages, at first relevance, they, um, or at first glance, they, they don't seem to be relevant. Actually, none of those scriptures from the Psalms and from Zechariah that, that John's referring to, they do not state specifically that they are prophesying events. They don't state specifically that they're prophesying about a Messiah or work that's going to be done on the cross. Now, let's think of John for a moment. Certainly, while John is there at the cross, he's not making these links. But he does give for us a clue for his method. And when he does begin making these links, back in chapter 2 of his gospel, it's in the story in which he's recounting Jesus cleansing the temple. Let me read that to you from John 2, 16 to 22. And Jesus told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed then the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now that verse about the disciples remembered, and they uh, are uh, remembering about the, uh, the, the, the temple and being raised and, and about to being thirsty. That's, that comes actually from the same psalm about thirst in sour wine. It's only after the resurrection. It's only when they're looking back on the events of Jesus in Scripture that they're beginning to make the, the, the connection. It's the resurrection that puts the puzzle pieces together. But even more so, actually, than the resurrection, it's Jesus putting the pieces together for them. Even after the resurrection, Luke records for us in his gospel in chapter 24 how Jesus had to teach them that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then it says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You know, there's that word fulfillment again. 
Jesus' point to his disciples, what John and the other New Testament writers took to heart, is simply this. It's that the narrative of the Old Testament, it's leading to something. And it's leading to fulfillment by Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the, the true prophet. He is the true priest. And so the story of, of Israel, of David, of the prophets and of the priests, they are his story. And they are made complete. They are, are fulfilled by him. Now Jesus spoke with the minds, was speaking with that mindset when he, when he had said, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. What he's saying is, what he's teaching is, I am the temple. And then when you take it to the cross, all those other psalms in in Scripture are being fulfilled. He's saying, I'm the thirsty one. And it's in my suffering that this given, that this sour wine is given to drink. I am the Passover lamb whose bones could not be broken. I am that righteous man of Psalm 34 whose bones were not broken. I am the one in Zechariah who was pierced. John looks back at the cross. He studies his scriptures. And with the prompting of his risen Lord, he makes these connections. It goes off into his head. Aha! Jesus, I understand now. The things that he does, the things that happen to him, the circumstances that surround him, they are fulfilling. They are being made complete. The narrative of the scriptures, which for John, are what we would refer to as the Old Testament. So John wants us to know that the story of Jesus is not an add-on. It is not a a story that's included in a, a book of miscellaneous short stories. No, his work of redemption, of ransoming his people and, and satisfying the just judgment of God, it fulfills the stories, the stories of the exodus, of the, of the temple and the building of the temple and what it all represents. It fulfills the story of the rule of the kings, of being of the line of David, and it fulfills the role of the prophets. And John wants us to know He wants us to know these things, not because, well, it's kind of a cool thing to know, interesting knowledge to have. He wants us to know this so that we might believe it for ourselves. We will believe that Jesus went to the cross for us. As he states in verse 35, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John will be even more clear about this intention of his in the very last verse of his gospel, in which he writes, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The story of Jesus is the true story of all Scripture. It is the story of the Christ, the Messiah, who is the Son of God, dying to save you from the power and the guilt of your sins. It is the true story that if you will believe it, 
If you will believe Jesus and in Jesus, you will have eternal life. Will you not join in that story as one of his followers? We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Upon that cross, completed his work to ransom us from our sins, to propitiate your just wrath, that we might be saved, that we might be reconciled to you. Thank you for this great work that he has completed for us upon that cross. In his name we pray. Amen.
Now grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.